Shibala is a, you know, we like to think it's a revolutionary meal solution. So we combine a smart oven with a chef prepared meal service. And the idea is that we take the best elements of home cooking and, and kind of kick out the reasons why you might not cook on your own. And, and so basically what that means is you buy our oven, we send you meals that are pre-packed, mostly raw. You spend about 60 seconds preparing those meals, put them in the oven, scan a QR code and 20 minutes or less later, you've got a fresh home cooked meal that's piping hot. Welcome everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, managing partner of Interplay. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. This week, I chatted with David Rabbi, founder and CEO of Tavala. As Tavala puts it, they provide poss- impossibly convenient home cooking. They invented a smart oven that perfectly cooks the chef created meals they offer, which makes them an interesting part hardware, part subscription business hybrid. Between choosing what to eat, buying the ingredients, cooking the food, and cleaning up the dishes, people spend a whole lot of time in the kitchen. Tavala has saved people time by making a solution that streamlines that whole process. It's all the way down to you order some food from your phone, you put the food in the oven, you click a button. It's that simple. It's an awesome product and service. Uh, They're actually on Oprah's 2021 favorite things list, which is pretty cool. Uh, Interplay is proud to be an investor. And without making this too much of a commercial, I'm actually also a very happy customer. It was really cool to have David on to share his insights about starting the company. During the chat, we discussed the ins and outs of Tavala, including the in-depth shipping process that's required to efficiently and safely deliver ready-to-cook food, something most of us don't think about. We also talk about how David came to start Tavala and so much more. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Venwise. Venwise is a curated community of high-growth leaders. It's isolating being a leader, but it doesn't have to be. Through Venwise, you can join discussions and gain support from fellow C-level executives at high-growth tech companies. If you're interested, apply by visiting venwise.com. David, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, let's let's start off with the the business. Um, Can you give us an overview of Tavala? Yeah, so so Tavala is a, you know, we like to think it's a revolutionary meal solution. So we combine a smart oven with a chef prepared meal service. And the idea is that we take the best elements of home cooking and and kind of kick out the reasons why you might not cook on your own. And and so basically what that means is you buy our oven, we send you meals that are pre-packed, mostly raw. You spend about 60 seconds preparing those meals, put them in the oven, scan a QR code, and 20 minutes or less later, you've got a fresh home cooked meal that's piping hot, home smells good, great flavor, texture, et cetera. Um, so that's our product. We've, we've been in business for about four and a half years. Why did you decide to start this? I mean, there's been plenty of meal kit companies and I know this is different. I'm a customer and an investor, but uh, why did you pick this path? Yeah. So I, I'm very personally passionate about eating well uh, and have been for most of my life, uh, spent a lot of my career before Tavala in the food space. And when I was in grad school, I was thinking about starting a company in, in the food technology industry. And I was trying to cook for myself despite being super busy and had this one day where I felt like I, yeah, I was cooking and I was using four different appliances in the home. And it took me three hours to make my meals for the week. And I was really frustrated. And I felt like there's got to be a, a better way to get just the home cooked product that I wanted. 
And so I went and tried all these alternatives on the market. And, and the closest that anything came was a meal kit, but it didn't actually solve the core problem of, I don't have time or I'm too tired to actually cook. And that was kind of the genesis of the problem. And, and the way we went about solving it is by building a fully vertically integrated solution. Because most of the meal kit companies, the food comes in a box and you chop it all up and you have to go do all the work once it arrives. You still have to do the work. Like they, they save shopping you. for you. Yeah, they, they save the planning. So you, you don't have to figure out what you're going to buy. They save the, the shopping, but that's it. You're still preparing, you're still cooking, and you're still cleaning. And, and there's certainly a market for that, for, for folks that hate the shopping or want to learn how to cook. We're solving for what we think is a much bigger problem and a much bigger market. And it's, it's really people that want to eat well, but don't have time. Who are the customers for that? Because I, I know you guys have been around for a while, obviously. You've got a lot of people you know, who have signed up for this. Is there a typical customer demographic that signs up because they want their time back? It is, a, it is a very broad customer base, I would say. Kind of the core customer that we target is a very, very busy young professional couple uh, that we call the life optimizer. They're really in the business of outsourcing anything non-essential in their lives. And for, for a lot of their meals, that's food. And so today they're overly reliant on food delivery apps, uh, which are expensive. Uh, quality is hit or miss. And food often arrives lukewarm. You don't know what's going in it. Uh, and, and so Tavala comes in as a substitute for that. And, and that's the core customer we speak to and market to. But uh, our source of volume of customers is much broader than that demographically. So whether that's empty nesters or solo diners that span a really wide age range, or even larger families where Tavala is one solution of many, uh, we, we've got a lot of different groups that we, we you know, really appeal to. How has the product evolved over time? Because you guys, you've been at this. I know I've seen different offerings, um, you know, for, for people who haven't used it. There's a mobile app and you can see what the food is. You can have order for the next week and you just go through and click. It's super easy. Um, what is, uh, how is your product line evolving? Yeah, it's, it's evolved a lot. I'd say no, like revolutions, a, a lot of evolution over time. So across the board, when we think about product here, it's really everything from the oven to the mobile app, to the food, to the packaging, and all those things have to work holistically together. All of those have changed uh, significantly since we launched. So there's a Gen 2 oven. It's smaller, lighter, more functionality than the Gen 1. Uh, the menu has evolved in a, in a lot of ways. So one is size. We launched with five items a week on menu. Now there's 20. Two is day part. We launched with just dinner. Today it's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Three is types of meals. Uh, much, much broader selection. I'd say more mainstream selection. Uh, there's now premium offering. So a lot of different things have evolved on the menu. Uh, the app has evolved considerably. There's a lot more things you can do with the app than before where we launched. There's very limited functionality. Uh, and then packaging has continued to evolve to become more sustainable, uh, to you know be a lot better for our margins, better customer experience, things of that nature. Yeah, that's a super interesting thing about sustainable packaging. We're investors in a company called Temper Pack as well. And... I don't know if you use them or not, but they're, what's novel about that is when we made that investment, we learned that a lot of the delivery companies, the number one reason of churn from their customer base was people felt bad throwing away all the styrofoam and all the other you know, bad stuff that mm -hmm. kind of came in the packaging. You know, they're environmentally conscious consumers feeling like they're doing something bad for the world by ordering food. Uh, and so Temper Pack brought a fully recyclable packaging solution. And that, um, that obviously did very well and took off. Uh, how has your packaging changed? What, what, do you, what does someone think about, you know, for 
would-be food entrepreneurs listening to this, what's the packaging game like? How do you think about supply chain management and all the pieces that go with that? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a huge part of our business that has only gotten more complex as our scale has grown, as the variety of meals that we offer has grown, as the types of boxes we offer has grown, and as the global supply chain has turned upside down. All those things have made this part of the business extra complex. Uh, I'd say at a high level, the way it's evolved is we're a lot smarter with the amount of packaging that we have to include, the amount of gel packs that we have to include, um, and, and just trying to optimize for a better customer experience. But I still think there's so much room to go there. And, and really, what's the challenge from an environmentally friendly standpoint is finding solutions that are cost-effective, but also you know, net positive for the environment. And, and we've certainly gotten better on that front than before, but I still think there's a ways to go and, and likely a lot more innovation to come. Is, if someone's starting in this space and they're like, okay, we have to figure out packaging, is there an easy talk to this broker or think about this or start here or do that kind of a, is there a rule of thumb or basic way to kind of get started on this? There certainly was not for us. <laughs> we were fortunate to have uh, a few uh, team members with PhDs that really understood food science and thermodynamics and could figure out at a high level how much ice and insulation to put into these boxes that were shipping raw product all across the country. And now mm. we've got a proprietary uh, algorithm that does all that calculation for us on a weekly basis. You know, it takes into account historical weather, type of food, how far the food is going, um, all the varieties of gel packs and insulation we can put in. Uh, and, and so it's really complex. I, I wish there was one place to go, but unfortunately, shipping raw perishable product across the country is still a relatively new business, and, mm. and there there are not like central sources of truth that, that we know of. Um, that maybe, is super interesting. Yeah, M- most people are not thinking about the fact that there's and you know math required. You're just thinking you put some ice packages in. It's I mean it's really complicated. Like you you need your food to stay at you know food safe temperatures and ensure that when it arrives to the customer, it's safe to eat. Um, and at the same time, you can't overload your box with ice because your costs will go up too high. And you also don't want your food to get too cold. So, and again, there's variables there of like, all right, well, it's going to be in a truck, then it's going to be on a doorstep, then it's going to be in our facility, and it's going to go from a cold temperature state to a warm temperature state. It's, it's a lot of different things to factor in uh, that are much more complex than what meets the eye. Huh, fascinating. Now, how about the oven? The oven always was a, a bit of a novelty to me. Um, the, the, the way you, I, I never seen the barcode thing before. I don't know if anyone's done that or QR code or whatever the dots are. You, you know, you put the food in, you scan the code on the box that the food came in and the oven knows exactly how to cook the food, including mm-hmm. steaming it and the whole thing. Had that ever been done before? Not really. Uh, I don't know who, who did it first. Whirlpool's got a microwave that scans some, some microwavable products. Uh, I, I think that was launched like a, you know, maybe a little bit after us. There, but but it definitely not mainstream. And uh, we, we came to the solution by focusing on the problem, I would say. like We knew we needed some mechanism to communicate between our meals and the oven. And knowing that the meals were going to change every week, that mechanism had to be able to update itself. And uh, it also had to be cheap enough that you could have something like that on every meal. So that ruled out things like NFC and RFID. Um, and so barcode scanning was kind of the solution for us. And I think it's, it's been really, really, uh, a big win. I'd say it's, it's kind of the key differentiator. It's the magical moment. Uh, and we're trying to lean into that more from kind of a brand design standpoint, moving forward. Um, 
and it works, you know, just from an operational standpoint, it, it works really well. Fascinating. How many meals are you guys shipping at this point? I know the, it's a big number, but what's a month look like for you guys? It's a big number. It's, it's hundreds of thousands. Um, okay. So how do you manage that logistically? So someone's writing a business plan now and thinking, okay, we eventually want to ship hundreds of thousands of meals a month. What is the supply chain infrastructure that gets that, makes that a reality? Yeah, I don't know if you could, you'd have had to have done this before to be able to write a business plan today for how you'll do it at mm-hmm. our scale. Like we had to learn our way into this. Yep. And again, you know, the challenge with our business is there's not a lot of precedent for a food production operation that is producing fresh, perishable product that's also partially cooked at some points and changing every week. Like that just didn't really exist 10, 15 years ago. Like the closest you would find is airplane food, to be honest, even though the right. quality is really low. Like that's, that's the closest you would come to doing this at scale. Like most CPG companies are making the same product every week. It's a totally different operation versus needing to make something different week over week at, at enormous scale. So there's not a lot to study uh, in terms of how to do this. And, and we learned our way in. You know, I'd say our, our first week looked a lot more like a restaurant than, than what it looks like today. And gradually, we evolved into what's more of a manufacturing business uh, than a restaurant business. So but what, what's the reality, though? If you walk in, there's some giant warehouse and a bunch of people in chef's outfits, you know, <laughs> cooking food. And is it a supply chain? Is it a Henry Ford model? Give me a little color on what this looks like to deliver at that scale. Yeah. So it, it is a, a very large kitchen where we're, where we're processing, you know, tons and tons of food. Uh, a lot of it requires hands-on work, whether it's creation of sauces or marinating of things or uh, par cooking of things where there's definitely a, a large human element that uh, ensures the quality is going to be really high. That's, that's something that was important to us from day one versus finding a co-packer to do this work for us. The meals are high quality and, and a lot of the recipes are complex. So there's definitely that huge part of the operation. And then there's a pick and pack part as well. Once the food is prepared, brought down to temp, uh, packing all the meals is pretty complex. There's a lot of different combinations that you can have in each box. The boxes go to lots of different states. There's a lot of different carriers that process those boxes for us. Um, and so that, that's kind of a weekly cycle for us. When I hear customization, I think expense. Right. The more you're changing your supply chain and your manufacturing model, especially on a weekly basis, mm-hmm. the more you're driving up costs. Now, you guys are providing an evolving menu. How do you make sense of that and rationalize it economically? I mean, I'm sure the customers don't want to eat the same, see the same meal every week. Yep. So how do, I know there's a business need to do it on the, to create demand, but how do you maintain a streamlined supply chain with such variance? Yeah, I think the key here is that the central components of our meals are not changing week over week. And so, you know, they'll change quarterly where we'll add entirely new proteins or new form factors. And certainly there's some new ingredients that get added every week, but the, the bulk are similar proteins, similar veg, uh, sim- similar dry goods that we're drawing from. And maybe that's not week over week, but on a monthly basis, it's like we're, we're always going to have some flatbreads on the menu. We're always going to have some flatbreads on the menu. We're always going to have salmon, chicken breast, certain kinds of meatballs. So there's definitely some similarity week over week. And then you'll see a lot of change in flavors and side dishes and things. But 
that's how we maintain, you know, continued improvement in our margin profile uh, and how to the extent we can have supply chain resiliency, we, we try to do that. All right. So you're masking some of the customization because it looks like a different menu every week, but at its core, the from a manufacturing production standpoint, there's so many of the ingredients are the same. Maybe the flavor is different. Uh, That's exactly right. Some consistency. And, and if, you, if you really think about it, it's like there's only so many proteins that the average American is consuming every week. There's only so many right. form factors that you're consuming every week and changes in flavor profile. But, you know, every kind of different type of cuisine cooks a chicken dish, right? It's just like how, how right. do they cook it uh, or, or, you know, pork chop or whatever it may be. Uh, so. Got it. Now, you guys have a huge marketing component to the business as well. Um, you know, as an investor, I kind of look at this as a marketing business and think about the marketing economics. Uh, what are some of the key things you've learned about scaling a marketing machine? I mean, it's massive at this point. How do you, what, what have you learned along the way that surprised you? Yeah, it's, we have to be great at so many things in this business, which I think can be scary for some investors. For other investors, I think it's really appealing because it means it's just hard to replicate if, if you believe the team can execute on it. And marketing is one of those things. Like we have to be great at marketing and that's performance marketing, but also brand marketing. And uh, I think we've had to learn our way into a, a lot of those different things. And for us, I'd say that the biggest one was just willingness to test and learn and fail uh, and, and take some things that we might have not been willing to test on and, and be willing to do it. You know, the one I'll highlight is price. I'd say for a while, we were a little hesitant to test dramatic things with price, both, both on our ovens and on our meals. And we had one team member that pushed and a board member that pushed that really encouraged us and told us, hey, there's really very little to lose at this scale. And it isn't until you, you get to like truly, truly massive scale where it's, it's hard to test. And even then, you can test things that you, you would otherwise think there would be these kind of crazy ramifications from your customers. Uh, that's, it's, it's just a fallacy. And so we've tested all manners of things, you know, oven price, amount of meal commitments with the ovens, meal price, shipping price. And you learn things really quickly and a lot of assumptions quickly get thrown out the window. Um, and for us, a lot of those were huge unlocks in terms of what it could do for our growth and our kind of overall unit economics. As a serial entrepreneur, I think a lot about, you know, that there's the known startup phrase, fuck it, ship it. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why that works is because customers are, they don't seem like they're forgiving, but they are because they're getting inbounded by so much other stuff. You know, they don't wake up thinking, living and breathing your product the way you do. They forget. Mm-hmm. So we, we launch stuff even on, you know, brand important assets like Enterprise website. We'll put stuff up that's half-baked and tweak it later. Yep. And how many people are going to land on our website in that period of time? And who's going to remember when they come back in six months what a VC website looks like, right? Yep. So I hear you. I, I, think it's a, I think that's an important entrepreneurial lesson that a lot of entrepreneurs fear is that there's going to be some sort of market rumor mill about their business. And I just think it's not reality. I think you have yep. to, it's pretty extreme for anyone to care that much. I agree. Okay. Um, now let's talk about your, your rebrand. Yeah. So, you know, if we rewind a couple years, we found ourselves two years post-launch product with really strong retention, high MPS, and, but not as much growth as we wanted. And, and the way we thought about that, we're like, you know, 
how do you find this elusive product market fit? What does that mean? And what we kept coming back to is like, we got to get to a point where demand outstrips supply. Like customers want our product so much that we're breaking in order to fulfill. And we weren't there. Uh, and so we went back to the drawing board and we went to our, our best customers and interviewed them and really tried to understand in their words, what makes Tavala special? How do you talk about it? What do you tell your friends? And then we went to a bunch of prospective customers. So these were folks that had been to our website and opted not to buy. And we asked them why, like, what, you know, give us the three reasons why you, you clearly you express some interest in the product. Why didn't you get over the hump? And, and we heard the same things over and over again. The, the first was price. Oven's too expensive because I don't really know if it's any good. And you're asking me to commit to a lot of meals for this kind of newfangled product that sounds too good to be true. So that was one. Two, people didn't really get it. Like, oh, how does it work? Can I cook my own food? Is, is the food fresh or frozen? All these kind of basic questions about the product because it's so new to the world. And then the third was trust. Like, is it actually as good as you say it's going to be? Um, and so we kind of went and tackled all three of those one by one. Price, we talked a little bit about. We, we tested a bunch of different things and landed on something that, that worked really well for us. Uh, education and understanding. We, we kind of redid the entire website experience, the whole email drip campaign experience, and tried to unfold the, the narrative of how the product works in a much simpler, more cohesive way. And then the third was around trust. And you know, for this, we pulled in a lot of reviews. We added a lot more video to the website. And then kind of overarching all these was, was rethinking the brand. And so you know, we launched with a much more functional-led brand. And we, we pulled it up a, a level to really a focus on time savings, which is what we kept hearing from our customers at the time. And that helped unify a lot of the messaging and how we were communicating about the business and the product. And that went a super long way. So the, the combination of all those things actually got us to that product market fit to the point where our operations were breaking uh, because we just we couldn't meet the demand. Could you, uh, when you said a, a functional, you had functional messaging on the website, that was things like, you know, the food tastes like this and here's the calories and it was like the features. Yeah, like, you know, right? revolutionary smart oven or oven and meal service that will, you know, blow your mind or food that cooks at the scan of a barcode, like really, really functional stuff as opposed yeah. to trying to get to the core of why people were buying, which at the end of the day is like people want to be able to, to do their own thing. Like they, whether they're busy, they don't have energy, like they want to be able to, to live their lives and not have to worry about cooking dinner or ordering dinner. And Tavala enables that. And, and so the, the, we, we brought that up to focus on time savings, which will continue to evolve. I think there's kind of an order above that that we're working towards. But time savings was what we anchored on at that point in late 2019. And, and it went a super long ways for us. You know, it's interesting. We had a company pitch recently. And the pitch they gave for a great company was all about the little features of their product, the things that a customer might have wanted to know. And it was all true and it was all accurate. And the company was great, but it couldn't have been less inspiring. You know, when you're a customer of any type, and as an investor, I'm a customer for equity, I suppose, right? Humans buy into narratives. There's a guy named Simon Sinek. If you guys haven't watched the video, uh, everyone should. Uh, Simon Sinek, you can find him on YouTube. Uh, I think it's How Great Leaders Inspire Action. And he talks about the psychological connection we have with narratives and stories right? Selling features about your product is just as not grab people. That's the afterthought. You need to think about why it matters. What's the pain it solves, how it brings it home. 
So instead of saying, hey, we've got a button that does this and it's geolocated and it works on mobile, it's people have this problem and we solve it and we have a button that does this and it's geolocated and it works on mobile. And it's just way more compelling. So it's, it's interesting. These are lessons that happen over and over. When we bring on entrepreneurs at Interplay, we'll often have them watch the Simon Sinek video. It takes like 15 minutes. And it just wires people to be turning the messaging inside out. It's the why first, not the how. Yep. Um, it's interesting. You guys went through a whole thing. What I love about your story in particular is I know you were growing before the rebrand, but there was an, there was an obsession with excellence. And so you were going out to get to the bottom of you know, how you go from growing to you know, blitzing. Right. Right. That's exactly right. That's awesome. Now, there's another dimension of your business, which I, I'd be interested to hear your take on the psychology of it. One of the things that really attracted us when we first heard your pitch was that the customer buys something physical and it sits on their shelf and it really connected with me a lot like the concept of like a Peloton. When you got a Peloton, if you're not riding it or not, you're, you're going to keep the subscription going because you got a piece of hardware consuming space in your house. It's almost like a loss if you don't continue to invest in it. Have you noticed any psychological phenomenon around how that's affected the marketing equation for you? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I'd say the, we talk a lot about Peloton. We talk a lot about Nespresso, Keurig. I think the biggest difference between our product and those products is the relative cost of the oven to the food as opposed to like the cost of the bike to the subscription where for Peloton, it's, you know, 50 X is the difference. Whereas with Tavala, it's like two X. And, and so what's interesting though, is we still have retention that is so much better than anyone in our space. And, and really all that means is like the product is solving the right problem in the right way. And so there, there is no sunk cost fallacy with us the way there might be with a Peloton, for example, but there mm -hmm. is true product market fit. And, there's the constant reminder of the product serving a real need. And, and the other uh, key difference is, you know, with a Peloton or an Espresso or a Keurig is like, those are one trick ponies where it only works with the service. And that's not true with Tavala. Tavala, you can toast your own bread, you can bake cookies, you can scan frozen grocery products that you don't pay us for. And that keeps the product on the counter, even when people get bored of Tavala. And, and so what that means is reactivation rates are really high. Continued engagement with our service is really high. Even if people aren't giving us money, like they're still getting value out of Tavala in their lives. And, and over time, that means there are other ways we can monetize those customers. It's, it's very much like the oven acts as a billboard in someone's house. It's That's phenomenal. right. It, it, is a, it is a standing billboard in you know, arguably the most valuable real estate in the home. Huh. Now, how, how did you guys do during COVID? How did that affect you? Yeah, COVID, I'd say, was a, a tale of two stories. So the first was on the demand side. It was super strong for us. Uh, overnight, that you know, third week of March, all the metrics all of a sudden jumped up and to the right. Basket size, demand, cost of media came down, uh, reactivations went up. Like Everything you could imagine went in the right direction. And you know, that was the continued story through 2020. Our growth was pretty remarkable. Uh, the other side of that equation is... Uh, you know, there's a human element to that growth in our business. Uh, we're not we're not selling a software service. We sell food that our our team, which are employees of of ours, have to make and pack every week. And so, operationally, it was you know the most difficult and stressful thing 
I'd say any of us have, have ever done, uh, was continuing to ship food every week and try to keep our team safe, uh, was very, very difficult. So, you know, net net, it, it ended up being a, a great thing for the company and formative in a lot of ways, but it also incredibly stressful. The other thing that's interesting about our business is while COVID was certainly an accelerant, it, it wasn't a false accelerant the way it was for some other businesses. So, you know, we, we know a lot of uh, companies in the food space saw these crazy jumps in basket size that fell off a cliff at some point this year. And, and for us, that hasn't been the case. You know, basket size has actually continued to increase over the course of 2021. Demand has continued to be strong. And I think the, the biggest reason for that is COVID accelerated a lot of things that were probably in motion anyway. But when people think about buying Tavala, it's not an interim solution. It is a, hey, I'm going to put this thing on my countertop. I want this to work for me for a really long time. And, you know, whereas a lot of other meal services, they're, they're easy to try, they're easy to stop. And so they're, they're more band-aids in a lot of ways. And, and so I think, you know, net net for us long term, it accelerated a lot of adoption, but, but that was going to happen anyway. It just happened faster. Now, every company has had kind of near-death experiences come close to biting the dust along the way. Have you had a few of those? Yeah, I think like, like you said, every company has had that. You need a lot of luck to make, make it this far and, and we're far from having made it. But yeah, we, you know, one that I'll highlight uh, early on when we were working on our first Gen 1 product, um, we, we were very close to, to finishing the first run of production units and we decided to overnight a few of those units from China to the US. And my co-founder, Brian, was out there and our, our first uh, our first hire, Peter, was out there with Brian, and they'd spent like three and a half weeks in China overseeing this first production run of ovens. And you know, we we made a wise decision. We spent the thousand bucks or fifteen hundred bucks to overnight these ovens, which was not an inconsequential amount of money for us at the time. We get these ovens at our headquarters in in Chicago, and we plug them in. We connect them to Wi-Fi. We're all really excited. Small team at this point, ten, twelve people, and. They get connected to Wi-Fi. We scan the, the QR code on the first meal. We're cooking a miso salmon in this thing. And we look inside and there's this kind of black goo dripping down inside the oven. Like, oh, oh that's no. not great. We're like, but maybe it's just this one. But let's do it in the other one. We do it in the other one. Same thing happens. Like, oh, that's, that's a problem. And then these, the racks that come with the ovens, like we, we try to put the rack in and one of them is a little too big and the other one's a little too small. And the one that's too small kind of falls through. And we're like, oh, that's also a we're like, oh, this is bad. And then lastly, when we plug the ovens into certain outlets called GFCI outlets, the outlets, the ovens wouldn't even turn on. Mm. And this was like a true existential moment for us where we we're like, oh my God, we're about to ship 750 units out of China to our customers. And most of them are not going to work. And the ones that do, they're going to drip this kind of crazy black goo substance. And so we, we leave all these WhatsApp messages for, for Brian and Peter. It's middle of the night there. They're planning to come home. They've been out there for three and a half weeks. We're like, guys, you can't come back. Like, we cannot ship those products. They thought we were totally messing with them. We're like, no, there's like these real <laughs> fundamental issues with the product. And, you know, it was, right. it was a, had we not overnighted those ovens, like I think business probably dies. Um, we didn't have enough cash. If those ovens arrived in homes and they didn't work, like maybe our investors throw us a lifeline, but, but unlikely. Yeah. And it ended up being like a, a rallying moment for the business where, you know, there was no blame and everyone kind of rallied and tried to figure out the problem quickly. And we ended up getting product in homes six, seven weeks after that and didn't have any of those, those fundamental problems. So best practices for quality control for companies getting into manufacturing. 
Uh, <laughs> I mean, ideally, you've got better QA. Can, can, yeah. Can't you test it? You can do the testing in China, right? You, you, in theory, you should have much better QA on site, which right. is what we have now. But at the time, we're like, it's a team of two building a highly complex product. Let's let's get a sanity right. check and ship it to the U.S. Um, yeah, it's just it's very hard to build hardware, and we did it very lean with very few people and very little money. And, and that's why there were there were problems, and so yeah, and that's why there was no blame. It was like, of course, there's going to be challenges. Fortunately, right. we had some of these fail safes put in place. Yeah, it's it's almost like people going into a manufacturing process need to expect things not to work, so they can that's find it, those hiccups early. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now you're you're in the food industry. You mentioned earlier that for your life, you've always cared about eating healthy. It's been important to you. What does the industry need? And we can, we can start maybe. Not food broadly, but maybe um, you know the delivery side of the world. What what do you what what do you need? What's not working in your supply chain? What on, what entrepreneurs do you need to? What do you need other entrepreneurs to show up and build for you? What's missing? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I'd highlight two things. One, shipping is a real challenge, and some of that is just the state of the world in 2021. It's there's huge demand for e-commerce. It's hard to hire people, so. It's just much harder to ship product on time. But I think secondly, most of the large carriers in this country were not built specifically to ship perishable product. And, and that's kind of a, like we were talking about, a bit of a unique new thing that's, that's becoming increasingly common, but there aren't solutions specifically for, for that kind of shipments. And so I, I think that's one where you know better solutions for shipping perishable products across the country that are reliable and cost cost effective um, is is definitely an area of need and, and that's not just for us but for a lot of our peers so I think that's one it's, it's a huge problem to solve and and that's not just last mile it's really kind of the end-to-end piece when you say that are you talking about you know refrigeration enabled vehicles like what what is, what is the missing component it could it could certainly be refrigeration enabled vehicles where you know then we don't have to pack our boxes with as much gel packs and insulated lining. And, you know, we, we do use refrigerated trucks to ship our product in bulk. Uh, but then that only gets you so far. Um, you know, we still are very reliant on, on FedEx, uh, UPS and some other partners that, that have been great partners to us, but they're not optimized for, for perishable products. So I think, yeah, whatever the creative solution is, that's, that's one big part of the puzzle um, that's unique to the food space from the perishability standpoint. But I think just overall shipment challenges. That's all e-commerce. Got it. Now, how about the food industry more broadly? So getting kind of out of the, you know, uh, direct-to-consumer world, out of the tech venture world, when you, when you think about the American food dynamic, are we more socially, are we doing food correctly? Are we doing things well? That's a great question. Um, I think likely not. If you, you look at just overall health trends, and I think that's, some of what got me really passionate about food was just the effect that eating well can have on your mental and physical health. And, and I think Taval is going a long ways towards trying to help the general American population with that. Uh, our meals are generally much better, I'd say, than, than what you know, the average person is eating day to day. And we're not like an overly health-focused brand by any means, but it's clean ingredients, um, you know, mostly raw, not all raw, mostly raw. Uh, Many meals are five, six hundred calories, and so you know the intent of Tavala is not necessarily to make people healthier or help them lose weight, but that happens, and it ha- it happens a lot. So 
you know, I think we're playing a small part in what is a general bigger problem in America of uh, people eating too much and too much of the wrong food. Uh, and, you know, getting back to basics of being able to recognize the, the majority of ingredients on labels and have food that still tastes good. That's kind of the key that we always came back to is food has to taste great um, for it for it to really work. Like, that's kind of how we think about it. What's causing people not to eat healthy? What's the core of the issue here? What do you think from a social phenomenon? I mean, you're in this yeah, industry. I think it's a lot of What's things. I, I, I wish it, there was a black and white answer. I think uh, some of it is access. Some of it is cost. Uh, some of it is taste. So, you know, unfortunately, it's a lot easier and cheaper to eat poorly than it is to eat really well. Uh, and that, again, is it's an access issue. It's a taste issue. It's a price issue. So all of the above, I think, for better or for worse, like food will never catch on unless it tastes great. And so the solutions that right. lean overly healthy, like those are not going to solve the problem in mass. Food, food has to taste good for it to to have broad appeal. Um, but then, you know, there has to be distribution. And it has to be accessible from a from a price standpoint. So it's it's a lot of different problems to solve. And um, again, I think we're we're getting there with Tavala, where you know we think it's about as easy as can get. Uh, we think the food tastes great. It is not like all all in on health at all costs. Like it does taste really good. And, and price, we certainly have a ways to go. Like the the food could be at a lower price to access a broader market. Um, and this, I'm gonna I'm gonna push you out of your comfort zone here. Tavala aside, if you were king, not president, king, what policies would you enact or change to improve the health of the country? Wow, that's a great question. Yeah, you know what I think I would do is I would just, I would subsidize healthy eating in a a huge way. Uh, And that could take a lot of different shapes. But if you could find a world where, or create a world where a Tavala meal uh, or, you know, a salad, for example, is as cheap, if not cheaper than what you could pick up at McDonald's. I think that goes, that goes a super long ways and starts to break down a lot of the barriers that exist today. Now, food's a big part of our culture. Uh, and I know, you know, you think a lot about culture and are there other cultures that have influenced you experiences you've had abroad or otherwise that have played an important role in kind of forming you an entrepreneur or putting you on the path towards Tavala? Uh, certainly, I, I've been fortunate to travel a lot in my life, and you know, I think, I think how I'd answer this question is I. So I come from a pretty entrepreneurial family. I come from a family of, of immigrants. Both my parents were born in the Middle East uh, and and moved to the U.S. in their twenties. Um, and my my dad and uncles, grandparents, like everyone I knew was an entrepreneur. They, they didn't call it that because there was no alternative. They had to start their own businesses to, fi- to make their livelihood and. Uh, you know, they, they, I probably call them small businesses versus startups, if you will. Um, but I think that part of my background and culture is is the thing that has influenced me the most of having a, a drive to want to start my own business from a really young age. Um, the passion for food came more from a retreat that I went on with my dad when I was 18. And, you know, now when I, I think about growing up, you know, we sat around the table together for dinner every night and it was always a home cooked meal. So I think you know, somewhere deep down, I had this fondness for home cooking and thinking that that was really the gold standard. And so, you know, it's easy. And now that you look back on your life to kind of paint the story, it wasn't as obvious it was com- as it was coming together. But I think those are kind of some of the parts of what helped create Tavala. So when did you become an entrepreneur, at least in your mind? 
you said when you were younger? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I was the kid in elementary school and high school that had different businesses and was trying to make money at a pretty young age. So maybe it was when I was 10 or 11. I, I was trading stocks when I was 11 years old. So, you know, you could argue that I'd say Tavala is like the, the first like large entrepreneurial venture I've, I've kind of tried to get after. Uh, but I think there were a lot, a lot smaller ones that I was dabbling in from, from as young as 10, 11 years old. Now, a lot of people are afraid to be entrepreneurs. Are there barriers or things that you thought you felt you had to overcome, misconceptions maybe, or, or realities to tapping into the entrepreneurial pursuit? Honestly, not for me, just because it's what I always wanted to do from a super young age. And I felt like I was studying successful entrepreneurs at a young age. I was trying to learn. I tried to take jobs that I thought would prepare me to start my own business. So I, I'm pretty risk seeking just generally. I, I wasn't as afraid. And I felt like even if it doesn't work, I'm going to learn a ton and it's going to set me up for whatever's next. And, and I think that helped having the mindset that like, this is what I'm doing. Uh, mm -hmm. There's not a, some other pasture that I'm thinking about. If it doesn't work, I was all in from a, you know, as soon as I, I got started. And, and that really helped. I think if you're not persistent and committed, you, you just won't succeed in this world. What are the misconceptions out there? I mean, I feel like there are a lot of people who are afraid of entrepreneurship. It's a overwhelming concept for so many. Is that real or what's your take on that? I, I, I don't think it's super real. I think people way overinflate the risk of starting a company. Um, I think people think if it fails, like that's it for their career. And, and certainly you have to be in a, a position economically where you can afford to start a company. And you know, not everyone is privileged enough to do that. Uh, so not taking that for granted. I think if you are in a position, you know, I've talked to tons of people that they think the risk is so high, unfortunately. And whereas I, you know, when I meet entrepreneurs that had a venture that didn't work, to me, that's like an amazing checkbox of, oh man, this, this person has gumption, they have persistence, they have creativity, they have passion, they have vision, like all these different things that we'd want them to come and work for us in a heartbeat that I think when people are thinking about starting it, they think, oh my God, odds are it's going to fail. And then I'm, I'm screwed. What am I going to do? Yeah. I feel like the, at least in American culture, there's way too much weight put on that, right? There's people can't see around the corner that you're just more marketable after you failed. You've got more experience. Yeah. Yeah. You're more and this, qualified you know, even, for most jobs. Even though there's, you know, you hear about this in Silicon Valley, that fail failure is a good thing. I, I don't think that has like truly seeped into the national narrative and, and the average American that graduates from college and has a bunch of options in front of them. Entrepreneurship is still this kind of big, scary thing. Yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot. I did a little digging before the show. Can you tell me about saving someone's life? <laughs> All right, I'll tell the story. I, you know, I don't. I've never shared this publicly, and uh, but yeah, mid, you know, early COVID, I was, uh, I got up really early one morning. We've got this inflatable paddleboard that we bought, and I decided to go paddleboarding on a really small bed of water in in Lincoln Park where we live. So I drive out, park my car at the park, walk out. I'm still kind of bleary eyed. Sun's just coming up, and I'm inflating this paddleboard, and I hear from. You know, I don't know from where this woman is saying, Ayudame, Ayudame. And I don't know what's going on. And I look around, I don't know where she is. And, you know, she's like, help, help me. 
And then I realized there's this woman in the middle of this large pond is probably the best way to describe it. She's right in the middle of it. And there's no reason to go swimming in this pond. The water is basically black. You would not want to get in there. And, and she's kind of, you know, staying afloat, but, but not, not effectively. And I don't know what to do. And she's like, Ayudame. And I, I tell her to swim to me and she doesn't. And then she says, you, boy, I'm here. I'm going to die. She keeps saying, boy, I'm here. And I'm like, well, oh, right, I guess I, I got no choice. So I jump into the water and swim out to go get her, put her on my back and swim her to shore. I kind of trying to lift her up over the shore. I'm not a big guy by any means. Um, and then I, I don't have my phone or anything. So I just start yelling for help because I, I don't know how to treat her. I'm not a doctor. And I'm just like, holding her hand, trying to tell her it's going to be okay. And fortunately, where I was is kind of on the walking path to Northwestern Hospital. And there was a nurse or a doctor that was walking to work. They run over and are like, we, we got this. Don't worry. They give this woman CPR. Uh, you know, and she took 15, 20 minutes to kind of come back to it. And then eventually was so grateful. She thanked me and she went on her way. I went on my way. Um, and that was like a random Thursday morning, the summer of 2020. How did that affect you? I was very shaken up that day. Uh, I didn't quite realize I like got home. Well, first I thought about paddle boarding and, and I kept inflating the paddle board. And then after a minute, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I gotta go home and, and like get it together. And I go home and I'm, <laughs> I'm with my wife, like, something crazy happened. And she's like, what? and I, she's just like, are you okay? Like I was in total shock at what had happened. Um, and yeah, I, it was just so surprising. Uh, and I was like, did I react the right way? Should I have jumped into the water sooner? And, you know, I had, was just questioning myself. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely messed with my head. And people are like, oh, you're, you're a hero. You saved someone's life. And like, that is so not how I felt. Um, so anyway, yeah. It's you had the right reaction, story. whether you, you can <laughs> process it well or not. You did the right thing. So it's great. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Hey, uh, that's a great story. I'm glad I asked you. Thank you for sharing it. And uh, thank you for sharing all of the insights today around marketing, supply chain. Um, you're doing something incredible with this company. And it's, it's been a real joy to watch. Thank you so much. Thank, thanks for having me. It's been an amazing ride. Uh, we still got a long, long ways to go before we've made it. Thanks for being on today. My pleasure. I continue to find this business so fascinating, uh, given the combination of hardware and the subscription model. There's just so many interesting levers, um, and it's got to be a really fun ship for David to be steering. So big thanks to him for being on. This is where I ask you to help the podcast, uh, help get the word out so more people can find it. If you like what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review. Those activities actually help other people discover the content. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.